0: Hey, good morning. Very good to see you today. Good to be back. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you for your kind prayers uh, for me last week and your text messages. It's uh, good to be back here than where I was last Sunday morning at this time. Uh, so, thank you for your thoughts and prayers. Special thank you to Pastor Brian for jumping in on short notice. So Brian, appreciate you doing that and uh, your message on on prayer last Sunday morning. Well, just to remind you where we are, uh, I'm going to invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 16, but just by way of reminder, this is where we're at in the book. Uh, that red box is around the section we're in. We're in the, the seven bold judgments. And we'll conclude that today, Lord willing. Uh, that's what I hope to do. Press on and uh, talk about the last three bold judgments. And we're going to see some things today that we've already seen. That's because uh, John has already mentioned them in the seven seals and the seven trumpets. If you look at the end, say the sixth seal and the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet and the sixth and seven bolts, you'll see a lot of familiar ground. John's repeating himself, and that's what I've been saying. If I've said it once, I've said it a million times. That's a joke, by the way. Uh, Stop exaggerating, Pastor Ron. Um, That uh, the book of Revelation, our our key... uh, um, proposition is that this is not one long timeline of events uh, from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ and past the return of Christ to the new heavens and earth. It's actually uh, seven times. He's talking about the same period of time, seven different times. So think of it as instant replay. Uh, You'll watch football this weekend, perhaps you already have, and maybe you'll watch it today. And you'll see somebody score a touchdown, and and then you'll see it about six more times, won't you? Well, let's look at it from the Goodyear blimp, uh, you know, and it's a little speck or whatever. You know, you'll see him cross the goal line. You'll see, you'll see the camera on top of that little pylon, and you'll see the guy dive right past it. And then you'll see it from above, and you'll see it from the end zone, and you, you'll see it all different ways. This is essentially... Very crude illustration of what John has been doing in this book, talking about this era, the Gospel Age, the time between uh, the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ, taking it from different angles. Uh, Christie described it as that as an overlay book that you had when you were growing up of the human skeleton. And remember there's the human skeleton and then you lay a page over and and there's the blood vessels and then you lay another page over and there's the muscular system and then you lay another page over and there's the guy's skin finally and by the time you're all done with all those overlays you get a complete picture of, of that human and this is similar to what John has done with Revelation. He keeps coming back laying on layer and layer to give us a complete picture of what goes on in this age. And as we zoom in on the end of the seven bowls today, we'll we'll see things that take place at the very end, uh, as you do in the seals as well. The sixth seal, uh, the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet. We're going to see those things repeated here in uh, the sixth and seventh bowl as we get into these today. But that's that's where we want to go this morning. Let me read our passage to begin with. Revelation chapter 16, verses 10 through 21. Lord willing, we will get through all these verses today. At least that's what I intend to do. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief, blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place in in Hebrew, that in Hebrew was called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven, on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. The word of the Lord is an errant and authoritative word. Let's uh, let's stop and ask for help before we go on, shall we? Father, thank you for uh, your mercy upon me. Uh, thank you for hearing and answering prayer from uh, your body last Lord's day to heal my body. Uh, Father, strengthen me today to proclaim your truth, to proclaim your word clearly, and Lord, pour out your spirit on your body to hear and understand what John has written, what your spirit has breathed out. Strengthen us and feed us, nourish us with these words, transform us by these words, and Savior, we cast ourselves on your mercy in this time ahead, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte was uh, the emperor of France and dominated European and global affairs for over 10 years, for over a decade. Uh, He built a large empire that ruled over Europe until his defeat in 1815. One source comments that Napoleon is regarded as one of the greatest commanders in history. His wars and campaigns are studied at military schools worldwide he remains one of the most celebrated and controversial political figures in human history. It's reported that as he was about to depart for his campaign in Russia, that he encountered a, a woman of nobility and confidently explained his battle plans to this woman. So confident and so arrogant that she attempted to correct Napoleon and said to him, Sir, man proposes, but God disposes. Napoleon arrogantly replied to this uh, noble woman, Madam, I propose and dispose too. Uh, Another account uh, describes how intoxicated with his success he became and at the height of his power, he allegedly told someone, I make circumstances. This self-assured confidence, of course, came to a very abrupt end at the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, the Battle of Waterloo was fought near a town in Belgium called Waterloo on June 18, 1815, defeated by Great Britain. And what became the Netherlands, after this uh, well-known defeat of Napoleon, he was removed from power in France. He was sent into exile to the remote island of St. Helena, just off the African coast. He died there in 1821 at the age of 51. But because this battle brought his so-called brilliant career to an end, we sometimes use the phrase, in English, someone has met their Waterloo. So, for example, I've often told you, uh, told you a time or two, that I nearly met my Waterloo in 10th grade in geometry. It's of course, because I didn't have Christine Hill to tutor me back, back then. And what we see this morning in our passage in the verses that I've just read to you is a prime example of someone meeting their Waterloo. And it's a really great passage because we see the final defeat of the beast in his kingdom. Uh, the final three bull judgments that we've read put an end to the beast, the false prophet, as well as the dragon, our, our ancient adversary, the devil. We've been I've mentioned to you that there are three features of these seven bold judgments that chapter 16 presents to us. Uh, The first that we looked at several weeks back uh, was that they're judgments from the throne of God. We see these judgments, uh, most of these bold judgments take place not just at the end, but throughout history. The sixth bold judgment obviously takes place at the very end, but the ones that precede it. You could well see those transpiring throughout history. They come from the throne of God where Christ is seated at his Father's right hand. These bold judgments are divinely directed. A couple of weeks ago we looked at uh, the second feature, the one in blue uh, in the middle of the screen, that these judgments are aimed in particular at those who serve the beast, at those who, who take his mark. Uh, who, uh, who are characterized by uh, beastly qualities, uh, unbelievers who worship the beast. Uh, the first four bold judgments are poured out specifically on them, and we've dis- we discovered that uh, these were spiritual torment, uh, economic disaster, divine revenge, and the unfiltered wrath of God. Well, this morning we want to wrap things up by looking at this green... Uh, uh, box today and we'll see the third feature the third aspect of these seven bulls we see third that their judgments on the beast's kingdom they're aimed at the, the, the seat of his authority and they bring his rule to an end uh, the beast's kingdom is no more after the final three uh, bull judgments transpire so how does he meet his waterloo how, does, how, how do the persecuting governments of the world, that's what the beast is, we've described and defined the beast as. How, how, does, how do persecuting governments of the world meet their end? How does the beast meet his final defeat? Well, we'll see that he meets his waterloo through these last three bold judgments aimed at his kingdom, the fifth, sixth, and seventh bold judgments, aimed at his worldwide empire, and they proved to be his Waterloo. The first bull judgment we encounter in our passage today is is spiritual darkness. This is actually the, the fifth bull judgment, but the first one we encounter today in our passage is a plague of spiritual darkness. God pours spiritual darkness on the kingdom of the beast, in verses 10 and 11. And I want to mention three things about the spiritual darkness that we'll see in these verses. As I've mentioned, uh, I want you to see to begin with that this is aimed at at the throne of the beast, the seat of his power, uh, the base of his authority, the center of anti-Christian government. Look at verse 10 with me. The fifth angel poured his bowl on the throne of the beast. This is not uh, one just one specific location. This is any place that Satan rules through anti-Christian government. We saw an example of this back in chapter two uh, in the city of Pergamum where Satan ruled through the anti-Christian government of Pergamum. Let me remind you of what Revelation 2.13 said, uh, Christ says to this church, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's very similar to what we're reading here in verse 10. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Jesus referred to Pergamum like this because the Roman Empire wielded great authority in the city of Pergamum. There was a very strong uh, center for the worship of the Roman Empire. Uh, uh, Empire, but specifically the Roman Emperor. That's what I meant to say, the, the cult of the Roman Emperor, very strong there. Uh, Antipas was probably killed for the reason that he didn't worship the Roman Emperor. He didn't bow the knee. The ESV Study Bible makes this comment. The worship of the emperor as a god was strongly emphasized, even required in the province of Asia, was a major problem for Christians at the time. That's why Christ calls Pergamum where Satan dwells or where Satan's throne is. But in verse 10 here, we see uh, the throne referred to again. Uh, places like Pergamum, but any place where the authorities persecute believers and promote satanic idolatry. One scholar says it like this the world systems the world systems center of power the beast's oval office if you will cannot be insulated from the wrath of god who will expose the devil's darkness for all to see these thrones these satanic bases of power are the object the target of the fifth bull this is the first thing to see and i just want to comment here is this not what we're waiting for Is this not what we're just dying to see? Uh, Wouldn't you love to hear in headline news? I I won't name any particular politician, but boy, we could all imagine one. And uh, boy, wouldn't we love to see, well, I'll just shut up and keep going. (laughs) This uh, fifth bowl is aimed at the seat of the beast's authority. I want you to see another thing here. Uh, in addition to the target, the throne is the target, but this is uh, what the, the bold judgment consists of. It's the darkness, uh, the darkness that comes on the beast kingdom. If you look again at verse 10, let's pick up where we left off in the middle of the verse. And the, its kingdom, the beast kingdom, that is, was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. Now, I was uncomfortable last Saturday afternoon when I was at urgent care. I wasn't anywhere near uh, to gnawing my tongue in anguish. Um, And this reveals to us, we're talking about far more than just actual darkness here. Uh, We're talking about a spiritual darkness uh, that is much like it's much like the first bowl uh, uh, where people are in torment. This bowl as well, the spiritual darkness uh, has them gnawing their tongues. It's a spiritual darkness because it's a bowl poured out on a spiritual kingdom throughout the world. And so this darkness we we take to be a spiritual darkness. This is, based on the ninth plague that God poured out on the Egyptians. Listen to this and note the similarity between uh, this ninth plague that the Lord poured out on Egypt in Exodus chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was Pitch darkness on all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So early Jewish interpreters believed that the darkness of this plague symbolized Egypt's spiritual separation from the one true God of Israel. A little later on in Old Testament history, Israel came to experience this darkness. Let me read you a couple verses from Isaiah chapter 8. We often read this around Christmas time, right before the famous and familiar verses from Isaiah 9. This is the verse, verse or two immediately preceding that. They, Israel, will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is the kind of darkness that the beast kingdom will experience. People will realize their separation from God and the eternal darkness that awaits them and people will gnaw their tongues in anguish. The beast kingdom plunged into spiritual torment when they understand that eternal darkness awaits them. Jesus described it like this, their destiny. He described it as the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Really, quite, quite gripping, quite dramatic, and this is the second thing we see about this uh, spiritual darkness. This fifth bowl judgment—it's aimed at the throne of the beast. It consists of spiritual darkness, just dreadful darkness. But there's another thing that we want to see, and that's the cursing uh, that follows. And and again, uh, you know. This is significant because we would think that having seen their destiny, they they would turn uh, from their sin, that they would repent, turn to Christ. That's not at all what we see. Uh, They curse the God of heaven for their torment. Verse 11 describes their ongoing uh, situation. Uh, It says, and curse the God of heaven for their pain and sores. Uh, Cursed. Cursed. could say blaspheme means to speak evil about someone. Uh, it's the most frequently used verb for speaking disparagingly and abusively against God and others. They're blaming God for their pain and anguish uh, from this fifth bowl, as well as the sores they've received earlier. Spiritual torment, we describe that at, as from the first bowl. And, and although they have been the ones to refuse God's grace offered through Christ, and although they have earned this judgment by their refusal to repent, they blame God for their suffering uh, and not themselves. One scholar offers this comment. In in the experience of unbelievers, the response to suffering, even suffering caused by their own sin and rebellion against God is, is to blame God. And think of this example from the book of Proverbs, a uh, perfect example. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. And this is what we see taking place in the kingdom of the beast here. Uh, their own lives have brought this disaster on themselves, and yet they curse God uh, and again, preferring to endure their pain rather than humble themselves, these hard re- rebels refused. And the very end of verse 11 says, they did not repent of their deeds. So this is agonizing spiritual darkness uh, from the fifth uh, bowl judgment. Uh, God plunges the beast's worldwide empire to feel the agony of, of eternal torment that awaits them. We've seen the object of this bull, the throne. We've seen the substance of it. It's darkness and the effect is cursing from those. Uh, This is why the Lord cautions us in his word uh, to not let your life... Look like the darkness around you. Uh, you're called directly, don't try to be like the darkness. Be different from the darkened world around you. He says he says this in several places, but one there's one clear example in the book of Ephesians. Paul talks about this darkness in Ephesians four and five. listen to what God uh, God says here, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. they're darkened in their understanding. Do we not see this on TV? Nearly every day, when we hear our politicians stand up and explain things and, and the, <laughs> the airwaves are just filled with this, this um, darkened understanding, and we say, what are they thinking? They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And then Paul goes on in the next chapter, therefore do not become partners with them for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So as we hear about this dreadful bowl poured out on the kingdom of the beast, we must stop and understand that we are called to walk as children of light, to not reflect either the actions or the attitudes of the world around us, the kingdom of the beast. Thomas Edison invented uh, the electric light bulb in 1879 Twenty-two years later in 1901, one of these newfangled gadgets was hung and turned on in the Livermore, California fire department and at the time this story was written, I believe it was 71 years later, that very same light bulb was still burning in the fire department. The comment is by today's standards it should have burned out 852 times by now. The bulb was hand-blown with a thick carbon filament was made by Shelby Electric Company which probably nobody in the room has heard of. It didn't become one of the giants. Do you know why? Because nobody needed a replacement bulb. They made light bulbs to last and no one ever reordered them. You are called, I am called to be a Shelby light bulb that continues to burn brightly. A 71-year-old light bulb that shines on and on in the darkness that we live in. So, the fifth bowl judgment uh, is this judgment, this plague of agonizing spiritual darkness. We want to move on now to the to the sixth bowl judgment. This uh, bowl judgment, obviously, as we get into it, takes place at the very end, just as in the sixth sixth seal and the seventh trumpet. This one will see the end uh, taking place here. Uh, this this is poured out right before Christ returns. And I want you to see four things in regard to this deception. I'm going to put them on another slide so they they fit so you can see them. But one thing we see regarding the spiritual deception is we see removed restraint. And that is the restraints protecting Christ's church uh, from the beast and from the beast's forces is removed. Look at verse 12 with me. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So reference to the ancient conquest of Babylon or the conquest of ancient Babylon, uh, the historian Herodotus recounts that, how the Euphrates River dried up. Cyrus marched across the dried riverbed, conquered ancient Babylon. The Old Testament prophets predicted this conquest of Babylon in Isaiah 44 uh, refers to the river and Cyrus, who said to the deep, be dry. Uh, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill my purpose. The prophet Jeremiah, again, uh, prophesies against ancient Babylon, a drought against her waters, that they may be dried up, for it's a land of images. And just as the Lord dried up the Euphrates, this ancient reference that John's referring to, he's referring back again to the Old Testament and this image from the Old Testament. So so the Lord is removing all obstacles, uh, uh, all restraints, holding back the beast and his followers Uh, from the church. Listen to the ESV study Bible. Some of you are holding this right now, and it says this, the drying up of the great river Euphrates on which ancient Babylon foolishly relied for defense symbolizes God's removal of restraint on Satan's capacity to assemble a global conspiracy against the church. So what we're reading in these verses is forces of the beast rising against the church. Uh, Again, we're we're taking these as symbols uh, and and not as very literal things. That's the way we've been interpreting the book throughout. Uh, Another comment says, the drying of the river removes an impediment that had hindered the enemy's assault on the church so that kings from the east who stand for the kings of the whole world gleefully gather for the kill. Surely, now that this barrier, whatever it was, no longer restrains their violence and separates them from their prey, their victory is imminent. They, they wind up feeling like Dog the Edomite, as, as Keith read for us in our scripture reading today. They think they're marching to victory, but he adds, they're sadly mistaken. In fact, they're assembling to meet their own destruction. So this restraint is removed that causes the beast forces to rise against Christ and his church. The second thing I want you to see here, though, is the demonic deception uh, required to pull this off. The dragon, which is the devil, the beast, anti-Christian governments, the false prophet, anti-Christian thinking, Lure the nations into attacking the church through deception. Look at verse 13 in your copy of the Bible. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. Again, this is why we interpret these things more symbolically than literally. This is also based on the plague of frogs from Exodus. Verse 14 goes on. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So what we're reading about here, uh, the the uh, the kings from the east in verse 12, here referred to as kings of the whole world. Armies and nations opposed to Christ worldwide who attempt to finally overthrow the church they are lured into assaulting the church through a stream of persuasive and deceptive propaganda from the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, uh, uh, which verse 14 says, are demonic spirits. And so through false signs and, and wonders, the nations of the world, the kingdom of the beast is deceived into launching a final assault on Christ's church. Verse 14, Please, please note this, it says, to assemble them for battle. Quite literally it says, to assemble them for the battle, or the, the war. It's a very specific thing, very specific battle. It's the final battle. It's the last battle. As verse 14 ends, on the great day of God the Almighty. John mentions this very same battle in chapter 19 and 20. He says in chapter 19, this is really going to mean something, okay? So hang on. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war. Again, it has the uh, definite article, the war, the battle against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Revelation chapter 20, Uh, Says this, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. It's the same deception we're reading about today. It goes on, Gog and Magog to gather them for the battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. There, there is only one final and decisive battle, and it takes place at the return of Christ, or what? John says here in verse 14, the great day of God the Almighty. One scholar says all three parallel clauses have the definite article, the war, because they're referring to the well-known war of the end prophesied in the Old Testament. And chapter 20 shows this war to be part of the final attack of Satan's forces against the saints. So there is this demonic deception that we see next. That assembles or, or incites kings, uh, the nations of the earth, these anti-Christian forces, uh, to try to finally eliminate the church. And the third thing about this is a message directly for you. From Christ. Let me back up here. Uh, Because it is a call for spiritual vigilance. Look at verse 15, this parentheses. As all this takes place, this is what you're to keep in mind. Look at what he says. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. You know, we hear these rumblings in our culture, these rumblings against the church, and it makes us nervous. And what does Christ have to say to that? Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Stay alert. And watch for my return. Because I will come like a thief. You will not expect it. And the end will come. This is the same charge he gave to the church in Sardis in chapter 3. To Sardis, Christ said, Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what hour I come against you. Throughout the New Testament, he says, I'm coming like a thief. This one in particular, I, th- I think, is very important. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You know, people like Dog the Edomite are going to rise up And they're going to feel really good about what they're trying to pull off. And they'll be confident like Napoleon was. I make circumstances. And we are going to get rid of the church once and for all. And Christ says, I'm coming like a thief. At the hour of your direst need, I will come like a thief. So don't be caught napping. Be spiritually alert. I'm coming when it looks most bleak. It's a call also not to cave into the world around us. Blessed is he who stays away keeping his garments on. That's a reference to uh, the shame of idolatry uh, that he may not go about naked uh, when... Uh, Christ says to this uh, to the church um, of Pergamum, uh, Laodicea, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. This is a reference to idol worship. Uh, the Lord said the same thing to Israel: uh, the the your idol worship. Uh, is 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 nakedness? It's a shameful thing. Nahum, Ezekiel, uh, and so the garments here be clothed. It's a, it's a symbol of refusing the compromise of the world. And so one man says. Uh, Dennis Johnson, this is not time to go get in bed with the great city's fast-fading beauty. This is not time for Jesus' followers to be lulled to sleep by the promise of pleasure and prosperity offered by a culture that rests on arrogance toward God and ruthless violence toward his church. As we see the culture rising against the church, Christ says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. You hang on. I will show up when you least expect it. And like dog the Edomites, they'll be gone when I return. One, one comment. A, a time will come when the beast will attempt to annihilate the entire community of faith. This onslaught on the great day of God And the lamb could occur at any hour and believers must be prepared to hold firm in faith and not compromise when it does happen. Stand fast. Be vigilant. Stay awake. Christ will come like a thief. There's a churchyard in Edinburgh, Scotland called Greyfriars. Well, I skipped a bunch of verses here. Here it is. This is, this is Greyfriars Bobby. Uh, it's a, uh, a Sky Terrier. It's a memorial set up to a little dog uh, named Bobby. Bobby's owner was a man named John Gray, worked for the Edinburgh City Police Department as a night watchman. Gray died in the year 1858, was buried in the churchyard there. Bobby his dog, spent the rest of his life 14 years keeping a vigil by sitting on his master's grave. One source says that Bobby left the site for only an hour at a time to visit his two friends, the restaurant owner who fed him and the sexton in charge of the churchyard who built him a shelter uh, when Bobby finally died. They buried him in the same place not far from his master. Are you standing fast? Because Jesus says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. And the world like dog the Edomite, rises up in its cocksureness of we are going to deal with the church once and for all, Christ says, I'm coming like a thief. You stay dressed and ready. Don't you compromise. Stay vigilant. Well then, the fourth thing we see, and this is a really grand thing to see, Uh The fourth thing we find in this sixth bowl judgment is a spiritual waterloo. Uh, The beast and the nations gather to exterminate the church. They meet their end. They meet their own defeat at Christ's return. Look at verse 16. And they, that's the dragon, uh, the beast, the false prophet, through their deception, they assembled them at the place in Hebrew Is called Armageddon. Now, that's very brief. It hardly tells us anything. Um, Those who lean toward a more literal interpretation of Revelation believe that the nations of the world will assemble to fight a pitched battle against Christ and against his church at an actual location called Armageddon. There are difficulties if you take this as an actual location because the term Armageddon is actually har with an H, which means Mount of Megiddo. And the problem is there is no Mount of Megiddo. At the best, there is simply a a Mound of Megiddo, or Tel, as archaeologists often refer. This is Tel-Megiddo. It's a site that's slowly built up. As as, uh, people build on top of one another, a mound arises, Uh, This is the only thing remotely resembling a mount. There is, however, a plain of Megiddo. There have been 64 battles fought in the plain of Megiddo. Napoleon identified it as a prime battlefield. Uh, Several battles throughout history, major battles have taken place at the plain of Megiddo. And I'll grant you it is a very large area, but still it's doubtful if all the kings of the world and their armies would fit in this location. It seems unlikely. There is another view which takes Armageddon more symbolically, which is the one I'm going to adopt. As I said, several important battles have taken place here The primary one took place in the book of Judges. Barak went up to fight a Canaanite commander named Sisera, who wound up with a splitting headache before it was all over. You think about that one later in the day, and you'll you'll chuckle about it. Maybe you won't chuckle about it. I don't know. Uh, Israel's army significantly outnumbered. Israel cried out to the Lord. The Lord delivered them. And so, with this battle from Judges 4 as a prototype, Armageddon came to be known as the Waterloo for Israel's enemies, the place where enemies met their disaster. Listen to one man explain this. Megiddo became proverbial in Judaism as the place where righteous Israelites were attacked by evil nations, in particular the battle between Barak and Sisera served as a pattern for Israel's defeat of a foe with overwhelming greater power. So the name Armageddon is not necessarily meant to get you to flip to the back of your Bible, thumbing through maps, trying to figure out where the plain of Megiddo actually is. The name Armageddon is made to get you to go, ah, oh, Waterloo. uh uh-huh when you realize that this is the, the place of defeat for Israel's enemies, as the beast and the dragon and the false prophet will be soundly defeated at Armageddon. They are deceptively led to the place that in Jewish history has always been the enemies, waterloo. Now, we're not told how it turns out here. We're not told how the battle ends. Would you like to know how the battle ends? Would you like a sneak peek at how the battle turns out? Well, I do. So, uh, first, the outcome for the beast and the false prophet and all these forces all over the world who've risen up to destroy the church in chapter 19, verse 17. This is their outcome. That's for the beast, the false prophet, and the world forces. How about the dragon? What's his outcome? Chapter 20, verse 7. Here's the outcome for the dragon. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations. We read about that this morning, that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's a waterloo. That is a waterloo. So... This is the sixth bowl judgment that we've seen. It consists of these restraints being removed, and uh, through demonic deception, the beast and, and the dragon and the false prophet lure the nations to rise up against the church. We're called to vigilance when this happens, but they, in the end, will face their Waterloo, their final defeat. This is. The sixth bowl, the second judgment poured out on the beast's kingdom. One more to see this morning. And that is the bowl, the seventh bowl, which is a bowl of complete destruction. The beast's kingdom, that is, is completely destroyed and removed. And I want to mention two things about this seventh and final bowl to you this morning Uh, The first thing we see here is the destruction of the beast's kingdom. Uh, And this we find in verse 17 in the next paragraph. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. That's it. It's done. Uh, With these words, we've reached the climactic end of world history. Again, the ESV Study Bible says this declaration repeated in chapter 21, verse 6, affirms that God's plan has reached completion, his wrath against evil is finished, and his kingdom is fully come. It is done. Verse 18 continues. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake. Again, we've heard John say that before. Lightning and rumbling and thunder and earthquake, they're described in the seventh seal and also the seventh trumpet. And this is, again, an indication that he's, he's retelling these things from a different perspective. And look at the effect in verse 19, the the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations worldwide, friends, worldwide, not just in one place that people think is Armageddon, uh, the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. The great city uh, we saw back in Revelation chapter 11, the great city symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where Their Lord was crucified. The the great city here called Babylon the Great is any place where immorality is practiced like Sodom or where the church is persecuted like in Egypt or, or where Jesus is crucified over and over like Jerusalem. Not just one location. Everywhere where God's people are persecuted is the great city uh, uh, it's another way of referring to the ungodly world system composed of unbelievers who oppose Christ. And this great city is split in three, uh, John tells us. It, it, it's completely destroyed. And so here we see the complete destruction of the world system that's opposed to Christ. It's completely and permanently destroyed at his return listen to William Hendrickson, the the entire anti-Christian empire viewed as a center of seduction, the whole kingdom of the world falls apart and is destroyed. Its cities and nations are ruined. So we see destruction first in this seventh bowl, but then we go on and what we see is dissolution. The dissolution, the dissolving of all things, creation dissolving at the presence of God. Look at verse 20. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. I I grant you that. That can only happen one time. That can't be repeated. Uh, Mountains and and islands dissolving can only take place once. Uh, We read about it in chapter 6. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain island was removed from its place. We'll read about it in chapter 20. In the presence of God, then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky, fled away, and no place was found for them. It's what Peter describes here on the day of the Lord, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Uh, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be disposed. It's what Hebrew describes, Hebrews. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made. What we're seeing is the dissolution of this creation so that we can have the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, it will be glorious. We'll come back and and, and as we get into the the sixth section and the seventh section, John will come around and he'll give us another camera angle. We'll see the new heaven and earth uh, come down. But this seventh bowl includes not only the total dismantling of the beast's kingdom, but also the dissolution of the created order so the way can be made for the new heaven and the new earth. So how does the beast meet his Waterloo? How does the the persecuting governments of the world meet their end? How do they meet their final defeat through these last three bold judgments that we've looked at today. These three judgments that consist of spiritual darkness poured out on the beast's kingdom, Uh, the demonic deception from the dragon that lures the nations to rise up against the church, and lastly, the waterloo, that complete destruction of his kingdom at the return of Jesus Christ. Oh, behold, I'm coming like a thief. On that day when we are fearful that the the nations are going to win, it is at that time that Christ will come gloriously to to deliver his church and to destroy and remove the beast. At the height of his career, um, Napoleon was asked if God was on the side of France and he replied, it's reported, he re- gave this cynical answer, God is on the side that has the heaviest artillery. Again, came the Battle of Waterloo, where Napoleon lost both his, the battle and his empire. And as I mentioned earlier, he was exiled to St. Helena, uh, chastened and humbled. It's been said that Napoleon, once there on Helena, repeated the very same words that that noble woman used to correct him. And he finally admitted, man proposes, God disposes. doesn't matter what uh, the world thinks, how confident they are of victory, how sure they are of, of overthrowing the church, God disposes. And they will meet their Waterloo when Christ returns. Christ Jesus, encourage us with your word today as we see how our foe finally meets his end at your return. Savior, help us, encourage us, uh, help us to be alert and awake for your return. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.